Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek shareholder Mike King moderated a discussion on the impact of the Trump administration on business. The panel of law and policy professionals addressed the issues facing taxation, antitrust and competition, securities and financial services, healthcare, transportation and infrastructure, and international trade. Speakers included Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless and Strategic Advisor Barry Jackson from the firm's Washington, D.C. office, along with Denver shareholder Greg Berger. My name is Mike King. I am a transactional shareholder at Brownstein and uh, part-time wannabe moderator of Meet the Press, uh, so the genesis of this get-together. Um, we have with us and are privileged to have with us uh, a couple of our Washington experts, uh, and I'll get into their bios in a moment, as well as uh, my tax partner, Greg Berger, uh, who does uh, some policy work on the Hill with our policy experts. So uh, the purpose of this morning is to get a little bit beyond the noise. So there's tweets flying about, there's uh, verbal rotten eggs and rotten tomatoes flying about, uh, Saturday Night Live skits that... Uh, are, are entertaining and humorous with Melissa McCarthy doing Sean Spicer and uh, Alec Baldwin doing Trump with a skeleton that is Steve Bannon. There's a lot going on out there. Uh, but how do we get beyond the noise, the actual substance of what's going to affect ourselves and our businesses, our clients, uh, and our state and nation? So in the next hour, it's our goal to uh, perhaps disagree without being disagreeable, uh, have a, a substantive civil dialogue, have a little fun along the way. Uh, we are going to use a real-time polling app to get all of you guys in the game uh, because your opinions count. We care about the thoughts in the room, and we'll want to address where you want to steer the conversation. So with all that as backdrop, uh, on my right, uh, both literally and Politically, <laughs> Barry Jackson, uh, the New York Times has called Barry one of the most influential figures in Washington and a force in Republican politics for more than 20 years. Uh, Forbes has named Barry to their list of the world's seven most powerful conservatives. Among his many accomplishments in a distinguished career in public service, Barry served as chief of staff uh, for Speaker of the House John Boehner from 2010 to 2012 and was Speaker Boehner's first chief of staff from 1991 to 2001. Uh, on my left, Kate McCandless, policy director with 16 years of legislative, regulatory, political experience. Uh, she's advised clients across a broad spectrum and has a specialization in healthcare, but will grace us with many other opinions here this morning. And as I said before, Greg Berger, uh, tax partner, and my greatest challenge is moderators to keep Greg from speaking in tongues. So we'll try and get everything right down the middle of the fairway in plain English and pertinent to what you're uh, going to be doing in your business for the next four years of this administration. So without further ado, uh, Barry, would you like to comment on how we found ourselves where we are today and uh, the Republican hopes and dreams for economic growth, how they're going to go about that? Yeah, sure. So thanks, Michael, for um, having me, and, and everybody, thanks for showing up for a wonderful Brownstein breakfast. Um, so one thing Michael forgot, there's that pause between 2000 and 2010. I spent eight years in the White House as part of President Bush's senior staff, which also gives me this different perspective of what's going on. So how did we get here? It's really so simple. It's the, the majority of Americans... <laughs> And a majority of electoral states decided it was time to make America great again. And it it, it it sounds a little flippant, but it really is that simple. After the election, it was fascinating watching all the punditry try to explain what just happened and catch up with this. It was such a shock. And what they landed on was this, uh, well, this was just an uprising of poor, uneducated, angry white guys. But that's not what it was. If you go and look, it's billionaires all the way down to people that are on poverty. And there is nothing in a demographic way that binds them together. What binds them all together was this sense that Washington business, everything was just out of control and they were the ones taking the hit. 
they resented, you know, being told that if they thought a different way, that made them sexist or racist or bigots or whatever else. So they, no, that's not who we are. They wondered why the guys in Los Angeles and New York seemed to be raking in the cash, and yet they had not recovered from 2008. And the other thing is that Trump voters were not necessarily all in for Donald Trump. You know, some of them were, we've tried everything. Why not take a flyer on somebody who's successful businessman, you know, in their parlance, and who's going to break everything up? How can it get any worse? And the other part of it was there's a lot of people that said, ugh, I have to choose between a pig and a crook. What do I do? And it just, it, it the, the weight of all of the Clinton years and every the stories and everything everybody got through there, she's like, nope, not going to do that. She's going to be eight more years of what we just had. Ain't working for me. We're done. The other thing that's really fascinating is, is Michael points out this this hysteria that has developed in the last um, three months, and you really see it, especially these last two weeks. I tell all my Democrat friends, all my Republican friends, you know, we're 21 days into a 1,400-day stretch. How about just chill out a little bit? Just take a deep breath. You know, if you lost, I understand. I've been on the losing side. It sucks. It hurts. You're angry. There's all kinds. But you got to step back and say, all right, what are the next steps? How, if you, especially if you're in politics, how do I position myself, my party, my causes to win so that I don't have to go through watching Donald Trump and his team undo everything that I think is really important? And even Rahm Emanuel this last week gave two speeches where he just he just took a bat to the progressive Democrat kind of things and said, really, in what world do you think setting fires to buildings, blocking travelers at airports, protesting and shutting down traffic, what world do you think that attracts all the people who didn't vote for us last time to change their mind? Uh the last thing I'll say before getting letting Michael take us off into gobbledygook issue land is that um, here's how Washington works, and it also explains why so many voters said we're going to take a flyer on this. So Washington is a one business town. You know, we have a single industry which is taking all of your money and spending it on things that you may or may not like. That is supported by the press. Press is a permanent institution. It never goes away. It is constantly throwing bombs left and right and just stirring up a mess. There's us, the infrastructure of making sure that as our clients, your voice is being heard and helping you navigate the halls of Congress and the departments. And so this trade association, lobbying world, corporate offices, that never goes away. You have bureaucracy. If you think about, you walk into someplace like the Department of Commerce, and the people that an administration gets to a point amounts to maybe 100 people total in the Department of Congress, amongst 200,000 employees. So those 200,000 employees, you don't get to fire them. You don't get to force them to do things. They just kind of operate. And I use this analogy. If you think about, so the Department of Interior, let's use that. Colorado home to some brilliant national parks. Somewhere in the Department of Interior, in the National Park Service, there's a guy whose sole job is the bathrooms in the National Park. Are they working? Are they clean? Are they nice? Parks are their crown jewels. You want families and visitors to have a pleasant experience, and having a place to go is a real big part of that. So every year the budget comes out. Congressmen, presidents are making decisions, and guess what? We don't have the uh, the money to update 
these three national park bathrooms. Well, but that's my job. So he's not going to blindly just go, okay. He's going to try to find ways to do what he sees his job on behalf of the American people. That bureaucracy never goes away, and it is not a left-right thing. If you go talk to Barack Obama's people, they were as pissed off and angry at the bureaucracy as my boss, George W. Bush, and all of us were. The last component of D.C. is the president. The president is the only transient thing in town. We can wait him out. Four years, eight years, doesn't matter to us. We're not going anyplace. So if you're a member of Congress who serves 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, presidents come and go. I'm here, and eventually I'm going to be the chairman of some muckety-muck committee or whatever. The bureaucracy never goes away. They just keep grinding on. So as all of this chatter about what's Trump doing, why is he doing this, it's breaking the system, uh, lawsuits trying to stop him, what you have to keep in your mind is that the wheels of government, the wheels of this industry never stop turning. They just don't. And eventually they grind out something that you could say is their job. So whether Congress is passing legislation and sending it to the president or bureaucracies are putting out rules and regs or the press are doing undercover stories, whatever, it never stops. So as you think about the policy issues that are important to you, don't get wrapped up in the tweets or the nasty headlines or the demonstrations. Just remember, there's this whole infrastructure that doesn't pay attention to that. It just keeps moving along. And that's where we're at. I always find Barry so refreshing. <laughs> we give us a pep talk every morning. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you're ready to go hit the uh, anti-anxiety medication. Sales are, have been rocketing since the election. So, um, in all seriousness, Kate, can you talk to us a little bit about the technical aspects of the economic package, tax reform package, uh, specifically, how many votes will they need? So we just had Secretary of Education DeVos get confirmed uh, by the slimmest of margins with the vice president uh, voting to tip the scales. Uh, there's this little thing called reconciliation you hear some about in the popular press, but uh, how does that affect how many votes and how much consensus might or might not be needed? We've got 25 United States senators up for re-election in the next cycle. Ten of the Democrats uh, in that group are in Trump voting states. So may they be tempted to reach across the aisle, or will they even be needed if reconciliation is used? Well, I think there are a lot of uh, good parts to that question. Um, first and foremost, the United States Senate requires 60 votes to move to cloture, which means to move to the decision-making process on any piece of legislation uh, or any nomination, for that matter. I think that what we're what we've seen more recently are conversations around the nomination process and whether we should be moving uh, those numbers for cloture, something closer to a simple majority. Um, that's been done before. We've talked about that for the Supreme Court nominee as well. But in any other circumstance, any senator in the United States Senate can stand up and filibuster or stop something from moving unless it relates to the budget and a reconciliation package that is put forth uh, in an essence to save the country money. And so what we have done uh, in a very contentious way, actually, uh, in the early part of January of this year is uh, because Republicans had not passed a budget for uh, FY17, we were able to uh, come together and, and cobble together some numbers um, and, and pass a budget that included reconciliation instructions which are instructions to the committees of jurisdiction to go out and find savings. And in doing so, uh, we as a, a Congress um, have sort of decided that these savings are going to initially come from repealing the ACA. Now, I think one thing that Barry didn't touch on, and I think rightfully, uh, is is the, the threat of Obamacare in the electorate that elected Donald Trump. Certainly, there were uh, voters that made their determinations based on their experience interacting with the ACA, um, but it's not a very vocal majority. So we've made this determination that we're going to use these savings 
for the ACA and subsequently this one very big opportunity to pass something with only a simple majority of votes. And now we're stuck because there's no real common ground on what the replace element is going to look like. Uh, there are several senators who are requiring a replace element. And so we are having these long, drawn-out conversations on how and when to use this reconciliation package to repeal and replace Obamacare. But what we really want, and I think, you know, Barry has, has brought this up, uh, you know, a lot of Republican thought leaders are starting to point to the idea that what the base electorate really wants is tax reform, and that we should have started out of the gate with this momentum around tax reform, getting the economy working in the way that they promised the American voter that they're going to do. So here we are, stuck on ACA. We can't move to tax reform until we clean up this ACA mess unless we decide to throw it all together in one big, giant reconciliation package, somewhat uh, reminiscent of grand versions of the past. And um, we've all seen how well that works. So, you know, I think that we are we are in a very delicate position right now of trying to understand exactly what the American voter wants, but also knowing that we have this one simple opportunity to move things forward, and it's going to pass us by pretty quickly. So as we dive into the tax reform proposals that are being considered by the administration and Congress, uh, keep in mind what Kate said about the realities of timing. And while uh, the Bush administration said we can walk and chew gum, we can do you know, multiple policy priorities at once, multiple ambitious things at once, there's only so much, my opinion, oxygen, political capital in Washington. So, Greg, um, talk a little bit about the tax policy aspects being considered right now. I, once upon a time, thought I might be a tax lawyer, sat in tax policy seminars, a young lad in law school, and we debated what would make the code fairer. Note that's a subjective term. Uh, what would spur on economic growth? So from a high level, you know, tick off some of the things that we might see. I find them to be quite momentous, and I think they're going to take a tremendous amount of political capital to push forward. Yeah, and they are. So if we have step back and see where we got to where we are today, I would say in 2011, I think in 2014, the then Chairman Dave Camp of Ways and Means provided discussion drafts, which were really substantive uh, changes in tax policy. Um, and neither one of them went over very well, because there was something in each of those for everybody to not like. Uh, but it was an, an they were revenue neutral uh, views about what what you'd have to do to to have tax reform under what I'll refer to as our current system. Uh, and have it be revenue neutral. Then in uh, 2016, Ways and Means came out with uh, a tax blueprint, which was not tax language, but uh, more ideas, big ideas. Right? Um, and remember, this was in June, July, so this was long before Donald Trump was president. Uh, and the tax blueprint from Ways and Means is really what is driving the tax reform discussion today, and you just so happen to have a Republican House, Senate, and President, so it's more realistic that something will get done. If tax reform was just changing rates, that would be, you could figure out how much money you're going to save, but it would be relatively uninteresting to discuss. Uh, you just figure out what your rate is. The blueprint really changes the tax system, and I we can break it down into three three categories. Individuals. Individuals get a rate cut. Uh, the highest rate is still 33%. Um, so it's not back to the Reagan days of 28%. Uh, the, a lot of the more interesting parts of tax reform are, are three components, and they deal with, with businesses. One is you hear the term uh, business cash flow tax, uh, that, that they're, they're having a business cash flow tax. And in reality, all that means is uh, – all of your uh, business expenses or business investment, including capital investment, other than for land, is immediately deductible. Uh, and hence, you're on cash flow. Instead of trying to figure out that depreciation has some sort of economic life and you'll, and you'll try to match the cost of capital with uh, 
over the period of time that it's being used, you got you make a capital expenditure, you get immediate deduction. So that's essentially what cash flow business cash flow tax is. It's just immediate deduction of of business expenses. Combined with that is a loss of interest deduction or net interest deduction. So you would no longer have the ability to uh, deduct your interest expense. Uh, and some thought is that that will uh, impact uh, leveraged corporations and, and might attack inversions that are that are done that way. But but those two go hand in hand: immediate expensing and loss of interest deduction. Uh, probably the most critical piece from the blueprint perspective is what's called border adjustability. And uh, I think there's been a lot in the press about that. Manufacturers, the, the WalMarts of the world, opposing it. Uh, some, some anybody that imports goods, imposing it. Some people think of it like a VAT, which is exports are exempt from tax base. So a VAT is a value-added oh. tax. This is where you're, you come in to keep you from being yeah. a tax yeah. geek. Right. It's a hard job. Okay. okay. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, a, a, a sales tax of sorts that is not imposed on exports and only imposed on imports. And... But but the border adjustability is different than a sales tax. It's different than a, a European style VAT in some respects because it is an income tax and you exempt from what's taxable revenues from exports and you don't get that deduction that we just talked about of expensing for items that are imported. So it really makes tax based upon the location of consumption instead of the location of production. Um, so it's, I say it's like a consumption tax on uh, on imports or on domestically produced goods, uh, but you also get a deduction for labor uh, because you get your you get to deduct those, those costs. So it's a little different than a VAT, although there's there's some similarity, uh, and and it is a key piece to the reform, uh, in part because in terms of scoring, it it uh, produces $1.2 to $1.3 trillion of positive revenue, uh, which makes sense because we have a huge trade deficit. And if you tax exports and if you tax imports and don't tax exports and you run a huge trade deficit, you're going you're gonna to make more money. Uh, so the $1.2 trillion funds a lot of the other elements, the tax cuts, uh, the immediate expensing. Um, and so I think the view is, even though there's been uh, some people trying to push back on the border adjustability, some claiming that it violates a, a World Trade Organization uh, agreement, uh, some suggesting that it will reduce, uh, will really increase price of goods because so much is important. Uh, it's a critical piece to the plan. And so let's uh, hit the politics of that. Well, let me just, yeah. Yeah, so, so here's Sun, Sunday's Denver Post uh, trade war and how will that affect Colorado. So, Barry, I'll give you a nice warm toss. Uh, is this going to ignite a trade war? No, no. Saving Jackson. That was the <laughs> <laughs> this one. This one. Um, alternative music. <laughs> Look, so, so to, to add on what Kate and, and Greg said, so there's politics obviously involved in it, but there's also a philosophy that's involved in this. Historically, we, the leadership of our country going back to post-World War II made a determination about our economy, which was we'll build this, as, as Greg described it, this debt-based economic model because we're going to be the engine of growth for the world. We need Europe to recover. We need Asia, particularly Japan, to start picking up. And we've never really changed that model. If you think back to 1960, to, to the Kennedy tax bill, you go through the Reagan tax bill, you go through the Bush tax bill, you go wherever you are today, in any realistic macro version of this, the tax policy has never really changed. We've jiggered around with kinds of things, but it hasn't changed. Going back to why did Trump win, the economics, Kate's point, don't lose sight of what got you here. 
we've gone through eight years of subpar growth in the United States. Clearly, something isn't working. The value of the Dave Camp tax bill, which is what, what Greg alluded to, uh, he's right. Nobody liked it. There was something to hate for everybody in it. But the real thing out of it was, if you had implemented Dave's bill, what it showed you was, if you stayed within the current box, there is no more growth to generate through the tax system. And this was all you were going to get. Which then sets up this alternative of, okay, how do we, how do we, you know, really prime the pump and get growth going again? And so if you want to do the rate cuts, all the, all the good things that are in the Kevin Brady, Paul Ryan bill, they have to be paid for. Or, highly unlikely but possible, the Congress and the President could just say, screw it, we're going to add another $1.2 trillion to the debt. I don't think that's going to happen, but those are your two alternatives. Keep the tax code basically like it is, piddle around, usual set of winners and losers, and keeping Greg and his ilk highly compensated and employed, figuring it all out, you know, or move to this model that, frankly, the rest of the world has, which is we're, 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 we're going to go from, from a debt-based to a cash-based economy, and we're going to use the tax code to treat it that way. Now, the politics of this is that you've got Mitch McConnell, who has achieved the singular dream of his life, which is to be majority leader of the Senate with a Republican speaker and a Republican president. You have Paul Ryan, who, I don't say this in a bad way, this is like the highest praise I can give. He is the super staffer of the Hill. He started as a congressional staffer. It's how he thinks, he knows how the process works, and he's a thoughtful guy. He has spent a lot of time thinking about this bill. He wants this tax bill. The administration, unless for some reason the president comes out and surprises everybody and says, I'm against border adjustability, and we're not going to have the biggest tax bill ever, and how many of you actually think you could picture Donald Trump going, you know, I want a little bit of a teeny tax bill. I don't want the best, biggest ever. I just want a little teeny tax bill. If the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader of the Senate, and the President of the United States all want something, Go ahead. Place your bet against it. You might win once in a while. You're not going to win on this one. And why is this important? You know, finishes up Kate's point about the sequencing of all of this. Donald Trump's name is not on the ballot for four years. 435 men and women in the House and 33 in the Senate are up in two years. They know on the Republican side, and frankly, some of these red state Democrats know they got to get the tax bill done this year so the growth impact of it starts to be felt next year. You think about Ronald Reagan's tax bill. He got slaughtered in the 82 elections because it hadn't taken a hold yet. Even the Bush tax cuts in 01, they had to do another round in 03 because it hadn't really taken hold fully yet. They've got to get this in place in 2017. It'll it'll be uh, the effective date will either be January 1st or introduction date because they got to juice the economy right away. So that's what's going to happen in all of this. So who are the who are the winners and losers in all this? We're talking about real people, real companies, real clients. Who are the winners and losers? Well, I think I'll leave some of that to, to Greg and his business expertise, but I do want to make a point on Barry's uh, comments that he is certainly. He's feeding Kevin Brady these talking points because I think I've heard him say the exact same thing. Um, but, you know, realistically, a lot of the conversations that we're having, everything that Greg has talked about, these proposals, these blueprints, these thoughts, um, these are coming out of the House of Representatives. And while they are the largest side of, uh, of our, of our government on the Congress, um, they are not necessarily the only side. Article 1, Section 1, all revenue bills shall originate. And I I agree with you, but I think that there is a lack of confidence in the Senate about this particular proposal. There are more senators tying themselves into knots over border adjustability, and I think you're going to continue to see that grow. Uh, Greg sort of made a comment about 
you know, now Walmart is, is up in arms. Well, Walmart is up in arms, and so is Target and Best Buy and Crate and Barrel and Walgreens. And these are great major retailers in this country who are now coming together. They're having these conversations on the Senate side particularly. And, um, you know, I think if you if you find yourself in a situation where you do need to go and you need some red state Democrats, they're working, you know, to tear that apart. Yeah. And, and, and Kate's absolutely right about this. And I'm a House guy. I've never served in the Senate. I think they're a little pretentious over there in the upper body. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a street fighter. But but whatever the House ends up passing, the Senate won't be able to help themselves. They'll tinker on it. And the grease that makes these things always slide through is the transition rules. And that's, you know, Greg can tell us all about that. But how are things phased in? And are there certain things that ought to be treated a little differently? And frankly, that's how you buy off enough senators who have got themselves all caught up in this. So, like, you know, Walmart, okay, we all know Walmart. They really don't have much of a Washington presence. They're one of those companies that think they don't need Washington until they get in trouble, and then they need Washington. Um, so they don't have a whole lot of, of capital, political capital. But they've got two U.S. senators. So I don't know what's other than Walmart, what's the biggest industry in in Arkansas? Chickens. They may come up with something that's not even in the tax bill that has something to do with poultry or agriculture. It could be forestry stuff. I don't know. A member, when he goes home to run for re-election, has got to be able to justify the vote. I help so-and-so and so-and-so. So that's a big part of it. The winners and losers. And this is Washington gets stuck in in... We, we constantly get ourselves wrapped around the axle of we're wandering around in the forest bumping into these trees. And rarely the members of Congress and anybody else are able to rise above it and see what actually happens. So logic tells you if you have a 20% border adjustability tax, then Walmart importing bananas from Central America, they're going to have to raise the price 20%. Well, the other part of border adjustability, which is really more difficult to grasp because of macroeconomics, is it's based on foreign exchange rates. A strong dollar occurs when you pass border adjustability. So the theory of it is Walmart, yes, they have to pay a 20% tax bringing those bananas in, but the dollar buys them 20% more bananas down in Central America. And it's if you want to say the law of supply and demand for currency somehow will magically disappear and not work, then there's an argument for this. Here's the real winner in all of this, and this is why guys like Paul Ryan, Kevin Brady, they get this because they've thought this through. The first real winners of this are going to be low- and middle-income workers. Because as businesses adjust their model to bring manufacturing back to the United States, we're at full employment right now. We've got a huge sector of people that have dropped out of the workforce for all kinds of reasons. All of a sudden, there's going to be this huge demand for labor. And so you're going to see wage inflation. People are going to be out there bidding to get somebody to run the machinery. That's just happened. So all of a sudden... All these guys who voted for Donald Trump because they didn't think they were getting their piece of the pie or the recovery never hit them, all of a sudden they got a little more jingle in their pocket, which then means I go to Walmart and not only buy my bananas, but I can buy that TV that I've been looking at for five years trying to save up. That'll, you know, it just creates an economic cycle. And that's how all of this will. I think we'll end up playing out. So I'm going to let Barry have the last word on that topic. No, Greg, got several more to hit. Okay, just one more. Because I can have the exact opposite answer. Like the presidential debate now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and mine was really from a tax perspective when you ask who are the winners and losers. I was going to say high-income taxpayers who are in the 39.6% rate because their rate's going down to 33. And corporations that are not leveraged who – because their rate's going from 35 to either 15 under the Trump plan or 20 under the blueprint. So my because I wasn't looking at it because I can't assume whether it's going to create growth or not, but high-income taxpayers uh, and corporations 
And one thing we didn't touch on, which we won't, is the territorial system. So corporations that have foreign operations and want to repatriate that money. Those would be the winners from the looking at the tax. Billions of dollars that are stranded offshore because corporations want to bring them onshore at more favorable tax rates is what Greg's referring to. So that triumvirate of uh, ultra-high income tax rates going down for individuals, uh, corporate tax rates going down, and corporations being able to onshore profits. Uh, very, how does Donald Trump answer to uh, Joe Sixpack, who voted for him, that this is what they voted for? You just got a raise of $2 an hour. So the border adjustability is the quid pro quo, but is Joe Sixpack going to understand border adjustability? No, but he or she will understand when the paycheck comes and the boss says, you got a $2 an hour raise. Or when you first go into the job market and you've not been looking for a job because the $40,000 of government benefits you get for not working, all of a sudden the effective rate of going into the workforce because you've lowered rates, you, you've expanded the base, and they're going to they're going to go. Oh my God, I can get the high paying job now. What they consider the high paying job. That's but that's just simple political messaging, and you can get wrapped around the axle. Like so, it's a Democrat kind of worldview about how this is all going to play out. And I don't just I'm not going after my friend Greg down here on this, but yes. The rich are going to benefit from this because guess what? We have almost 50% of Americans who don't pay taxes. So the tax code is already skewed that the guys on the high end are paying the big price of this. So if you change anything in the tax code that lowers rates or you change from a debt base to a cash base, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to win out of this. The view is that there are far more people at all income levels and in the business community that as this works its way through, you get through the three-year transition of this, there's going to be very few true losers in this, except for the hedge fund types of guys who have been making their bets on debt-based companies and debt-based transactions. So let's uh, hit a multiplicity of other topics, uh, perhaps in hurry-up offense style, uh, Dodd-Frank reform, uh, regulatory, curtailing regulations. Uh, just this morning, we uh, got some news on the two-for-one rule, uh, that for every one new regulation, uh, two need to be removed from the books. Uh, and infrastructure. So three key topics for members of this audience. Let's get those one by one in, in so just summary fashion. Real quick, the two-for-one red rule, the lawsuit is a joke. Because what the president, it, what, the president has the power to tell the agencies, this is how I want it to operate. And it's not a law. It's not challengeable in that sense. It's a good operating principle. So we'll go through all the nonsense of the courts. But ultimately, it's the president's power to decide how he wants to handle his agencies in the regulatory environment. So that's just a bunch of noise. It's not going to have any impact. The Dodd-Frank stuff. You're going to get Dodd-Frank reform. And I think the the primary, if I had to like really simplify what it's going to be, same way as the debt bill, we don't have a problem with capitalization. We have more capital available than we've ever had before. And if you're in the banking industry, you know this because that's what Dodd-Frank was all about, is padding your books in case there's another crisis. The problem with Dodd-Frank's is the people that need access to that capital don't qualify for it anymore. So if I don't need it, I can go to the bank and I can get it. If I need it, I'm not qualified for it anymore because now I'm deemed a risk. That's going to be the primary thing that, that's going to be addressed in Dodd-Frank. Lots of different ways to do it. Dodd-Frank will not get repealed, but it will certainly undergo major changes. Um, and then on infrastructure, this goes back to the what the debt deficit situation is. So this trillion dollars that the press talks about, that, you know, the Trump people had said. They didn't say a trillion dollars in government spending. You'd think last year the Congress passed a five-year highway bill, which set the path for five years, spending $600 billion on roads and bridges and that kind of thing. Infrastructure is going to be um, air traffic control and, 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 uh, and the air system is going to be prime number one. 
The second part of it is going to be taking credit for things like defense buildup or things that are in the pipeline already. That that you know, if you think about Keystone and the Dakota decision, that will count as infrastructure. The third is in the regulatory scheme, what they'll do is that EPA, DOT, Interior, other relevant agencies will say, I know, how about we do this? Rather than consecutive study and permitting process, let's do it concurrently. Let's set a one-year time limit on it. Let's set something like a six-year, I mean, a six-month appeal process so states and private investors can make their decision and not have to worry about a 20-year timeline just with permitting done. And the final thing, which will be part of tax code, is that there will there will be a um, a system that will benefit private public partnerships. So whether it's regulatory or tax, so the the feds will go to the states and say, we're unshackling you, we're allowing you to do whatever kind of financing, whatever you want to do. Our skin in the game is not going to be the cash. Our skin in the game is going to be we're going to unburden you from all the federal regulation that causes you 10 years to go through the process when you could do it for one. So now we're going to get all of you in the game. Uh, if you have with you our wonderful survey questions, uh, what you need to do is text to 22333, the word Brownstein, and you're going to steer the rest of this conversation. Uh, so this is uh, loads of fun. This is an online uh, real-time polling app. Uh, we don't collect any data from you. No one does. You won't be spammed. Uh, and your first question is up on the screens now, uh, and this is just so we can get the context for who's in the room. So uh, polls are open. If you could throw on your answers, we'll see them ring up here. This is loads of fun. So uh, of those voting, well, the Republicans are making a comeback. Um, 12 Bs, 5 Rs, 2 unaffiliated, uh, 2 libertarians. So, interesting mix in the room. It looks like um, 14 Ds, 9 Rs. Well, the Rs are, are making a comeback. Barry, are you rigging the vote here? No, no, no. I don't <laughs> participate. <laughs> All right. You should. This is high We don't have apps on this. Great question. Which this, party now, is more proficient is in technology? <laughs> All right. We're, we're in a dead heat. Uh, we're going to close the polling. Uh, so, last vote here on political party. 15 to 12, five unaffiliated, not 17. The Ds are now stuffed in the ballot box. All those dead people voting. Uh, all right, so our next question. Polls are open. Who did you vote for? Again, this is private. This is not to uh, really debate what happened, just to get a context for who's in the room. And not surprisingly, as uh, Denver went heavily for Hillary and so did Colorado, we're looking at uh, 28 to 8. 29. Uh, interestingly, though, doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out that the political party split on the prior slide was a lot closer contest than this one. Uh, so a lot of people cross party lines, at least in this room. Uh, next question, Mr. Berger. Greg's a slightly different looking version of Vanna White in this instance. On Slightly, Jack. Yeah. So uh, polls are open. Did economic issues affect your vote? Some significantly, not at all. And I think it's safe to say that some is going to carry the day with uh, significantly trailing behind 27 to 15. Uh, not at all, only seven people said economic issues didn't affect their vote at all. Um, remarkable in an economic issues roundtable gathering. <laughs> okay, next, uh, Mr. Berger, Vanna. Taxing imports uh, to effectuate order adjustability will. Now the questions get hard. So, not unlike the LSAT that we lawyers suffered through, uh, there are multiple correct answers. You all get to pick your personal best answer for you. The test taker will not be uh, telling you what is right and wrong. So, Except the first uh, response doesn't actually tell you what the whole response is. Likely to spur on American domestic. Industries. Okay. So they, they, have, they have this. Okay. The, this is in purpose. We're not going to make fun of the technology. Uh, so the polls are closing, and that item C is an elaborate combination answer that the test maker you know, threw in there to see if you're awake and had your coffee. And a lot of people bid on it. 
Yeah, so item C is uh, both likely to spur on American domestic industries and likely to prompt a trade war, notwithstanding uh, Barry's silver-tongued defense and argument there will be no trade war. Uh, and three people in the room think that border adjustability will only have a limited impact, uh, but 29 people thinking that it would be both A and B. Interesting stuff. All right, Vanna, next question. So if countries respond by imposing retaliatory tariffs or restrictions on U.S. goods and services as threatened, my business, so, so your individual company, business that you're a part of, your business, the survey of businesses in the room, uh, will suffer substantially, uh, some but not substantially, see enough benefits from border adjustability to more than offset any detriment, or D, only see a limited impact or no impact at all. Polls are open, and uh, wow, retaliatory tariffs, 24 people say uh, those tariffs would only have a limited impact on their businesses. Uh, I guess we're not all connected. <laughs> That's fascinating stuff. We've got uh, answer B in second place, likely suffers some, but not substantially. So uh, I think that the White House would be heartened by uh, all these responses for D. Limited impact. Barry? Um, it's not surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. And we've got quite a cross-section of folks in the room. It was too difficult to poll you all on your individual businesses, but we've got, uh, obviously, lawyers, first kill all the lawyers, bankers, uh, investment bankers. You have a number of uh, real estate development professionals, uh, and then a, a variety of different uh, corporations represented across uh, healthcare, other industries. Vanna, next question. Scaling back Dodd-Frank will likely increase access to lending and prompt economic activity, likely lead to financial institutions taking risks like those that led to the Great Recession. Uh, answer C, both A and B, or D, only have limited impact. Polls are open, and this is a horse race between uh, prompt lending and economic activity straight up and a hybrid of prompt lending and econo economic activity, but perhaps uh, pose some of the risks that led to the Great Recession. And it's looking like that combo answer is going to win the day with 26 votes. Uh, straight up, promoting lending and economic activity at 18. So uh, not without risk, at least uh, as judged by those in this room. Next question. Lowering corporate tax rates will... Uh, likely prompt economic activity, uh, perhaps prompt economic activity, but it will at least eliminate quirks in the tax code, which would make Greg very happy, uh, give a windfall to corporate shareholders for both A and C. And both A and C is going to carry the day by a wide margin at 26. Um, windfall to corporate shareholders, uh, Bernie Sanders times 10 people in this room. And uh, choice A, prompt economic activity, has 10 votes as well. Just remember, corporations are people, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a T-shirt that says that for you. So uh, next question, Vanna. Broad-based income tax for, uh, cuts for individuals will uh, prompt economic activity, likely, A, B, perhaps prompt economic activity, C, give a windfall to individuals in the top Tax brackets, uh, D, both A and C. Polls are open, and these are all across the board. Not so much anymore. Um, 24, 25 and growing say uh, both prompt economic activity, likely to prompt economic activity, and give a windfall to individuals in the top brackets. A uh, clear winner with 28 votes. There actually is a correct answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're attending tax policy seminar with <clears throat> Professor Berger. Uh, Professor Berger, next question, please. If my company uh, or partnership, whatever form your, your business is in, uh, received significant tax reductions, it would mostly. So this is an imperfect question on scientific survey just for fun. But what do you think your company would do with most of the money, so 51% for argument's sake. Uh, reinvest back into the business in the form of capital investment, 
reinvest back into the business in the form of hiring to grow the business, uh, be passed along to employees in the form of increased compensation, be distributed out to owners, shareholders. And so this is not the way you wish the world to be, the reality of what you think your company would do. And the reality is, and this is one of those tenets in uh, corporations class, um, fiduciary duty to shareholders, 26 of you would distribute uh, those profits to shareholders. Uh, only two of you would pass along wage increases to employees. Yep, and Barry didn't even vote. But no, not getting that raise. It's not going to be a choice. If, if you're going to do reinvestment or grow, you're going to have to go get workers on the market, which means it's not a choice. You're going to have to do it. And, and we had 10 people who want to grow the business in the form of uh, hiring new employees, uh, 13 people who made capital investments. So recognizing this is an unscientific Vanna, next question, please. Uh, if I personally received a significant tax reduction in my personal tax bill, it would mostly, and we had this debate in my household with one of the Bush tax cuts, what are we going to do with that, you know, X dollar tax cut? Uh, so what would you do with it? Would you pay down debt? Would you save it? Would you spend it on major purchases, uh, home, home improvements, car, capital type items, uh, or spend it on discretionary purchases? Not a lot of millennials in the room. <laughs> wow, look at all these savers. There, there are a number of uh, financial professionals in this room. Uh, 32 savers, uh, 12 of you would pay down debt, 7 uh, make major purchases, and uh, one person would go on a hell of a trip. <laughs> I want to go on that trip. So, uh, Barry, what are your thoughts on it? Is this uh, your, your economic development wizards, uh, Tom Clark here in the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation? What would the thoughts be on economic development for mostly saving the money and squirreling it away or paying down debt? So I think it's a psychological answer. Is that in times of uncertainty, people will want to hoard resources, but the, as John Maynard Keynes described it, the animal spirit of the economy basically will then take hold. And as people feel comfortable, they know what the new system is, they know where they fit in it, their economic situation becomes more clear to them, those savings will then be distributed through purchases or however they can choose to spend it in the economy. And fully acknowledging this is an imperfect uh, survey, uh, blame blame the survey maker on who that was, uh, but the wealth effect. So if you save that much more, if you visit with your financial advisor and your checkup is that much more positive, then maybe, just maybe, you treat the family to a big night out at, I don't know, you know, Maggiano's instead of the Olive Garden. And you start stepping it up, and that money then flows through the economy. Mike, I've been in your car, and you should choose C. Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's, 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 I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> that, that was almost as eviscerating as that awkward debate moment where you're no John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Uh, next question. So, uh, I, I, I love having Greg around. He's on my toes. Uh, infrastructure upgrades in the United States are in dire need, and I would pay higher taxes to fund them. Now, that's not what Barry said is the funding stream for them, uh, just for the record. Are in dire need, but I would not pay higher taxes to fund them, uh, would spur on enough economic growth to pay for themselves or de more pork barrel spending. All right. Well, uh, given how the vote split for Hillary, uh, we've got 25 people willing to pay higher taxes to improve infrastructure in this country. Uh, 21 people who uh, think we need it but don't want to pay for it. Uh, three people who think we're going to spur on enough economic growth that they'll pay for themselves. And I'm shocked not one person said pork barrel spending. And even, there, you know, on A, that gets back into public-private partnerships. And so if a state or a locality freed of the burden of the federal, you know, foot on their throat, decide to do highway expansion or upgrade their sewer system or whatever, they have the ability now to go figure out the funding in a private partner, which may, be, may mean tax or bonding. Well, we're going to get to the implications of that with the next question, Vanna. So uh, we have cutting red tape will spur on economic activity. 
Broadly scaling back regulations in sectors from energy to real estate development will ensure that the United States is, quote-unquote, open for business. Um, your reaction to this statement, you either agree strongly the government should not be getting in the way of business uh, or infrastructure, agree but relaxed rules should only be allowed on a case-by-case basis, uh, or regulations are necessary to preserve important priorities such as the environment. These laws exist for good reason, and the existing regulatory process should be followed. So you, the voter, gets to decide uh, what we're going to tell President Trump to do here. And the votes are coming in. This is a real horse race. Um, we're just about between uh, government getting out of the way of business or doing it case by case with a strong following for regulations exist for good reason and we shouldn't flash all the red tape. So, you know, this is a 19 to 19 split between uh, cut all the red tape or cut it case by case with a strong showing for defending the red tape. Barry, your thoughts? Well, A and B are very similar. So I think it's actually... 38 to 14, it's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> People are like, yeah, the government's gone a little too far on the regulation side. All right. Well, we'll uh, reserve political commentary for the closing of the polls. Uh, our next question, antitrust rules, and we haven't gotten to this just yet, uh, antitrust rules should be relaxed for mergers, partnerships, and consolidation. You agree strongly consolidation is necessary to drive efficiencies, and the government should not be getting in the way of business. Uh, you agree, but relaxed rules for consolidation should only be allowed on a case-by-case basis, or antitrust rules are necessary to contain monopolies and anti-competitive behavior. Antitrust laws exist for good reason, and efficiencies can be obtained through other means. And, wow, I mean, notwithstanding all the M&A professionals in the room, uh, only four folks want to do away with antitrust uh, regulation in a broad way, uh, most of the room, almost 30, saying case-by-case basis. So relax the rules, but case-by-case. Uh, 18 folks are saying that antitrust rules are necessary to contain monopolies. So uh, the childhood board game of monopoly being um, sort of your, your all the evidence that uh, these 19 people need, that if you own both Boardwalk and Park Place, you will gouge the hell out of your renters. <laughs> Vanna, next question, please. Healthcare spending exceeds 18% of the U.S. GDP. Repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, and Kate referenced this a little bit earlier, um, is crucial to getting healthcare spending under control and promoting economic efficiencies uh, is a way to cut healthcare spending, but will leave many Americans with less healthcare coverage or will not do enough to address underlying challenges in fee-for-service healthcare that create waste and efficiency. Admitting there's uh, potentially more than one right answer, pick the one that is personally your best answer. And a very significant majority believe that uh, repeal and replace alone will not do enough to address underlying concerns and and cost issues in fee-for-service health care. 30 of you and growing, uh, 12 of you think repeal and replace is crucial to getting health care spending under control. Uh, six of you are worried about people ending up with less health care coverage. So uh, subject for a whole other day, uh, more detailed health care reform that tackles some of those fee-for-service challenges. All right, next question, Mr. Berger. And this is the last one. Overall, President Trump is A, on pace, B, perhaps stepping on some toes in the name of needed reforms, uh, C, moving way too fast and exceeding his mandate. And the votes are coming in. We're getting ready to close the polls here. Uh, five folks believe that President Trump is on pace. Based on your other questions, that was my conclusion of how that would turn out, and I missed it by one vote. I'm so proud of you, Greg. This is why we have this expert on the team. Uh, Twelve people perhaps stepping on some toes, and 32 people moving way too fast and exceeding his mandate. So uh, that does it for the poll. Um, coming out of those poll results, uh, anything, panelists, that we want to tackle more specifically? 
got got a little bit of concern out there about. Uh, go ahead, Greg. One thing uh, it came up once: who's winners and losers, and it was reference to transition rules. The blueprint, the House blueprint, says nothing about transition rules, and you won't know who the winners and losers are until you see the transition rules. That'll be the key, and currently is one of the key things going on behind the scenes. Well, and I'll take that one step further. Um, stay in touch with Greg because I think that these proposals, as we've talked about, clearly identify winners and losers, and people start to pick them apart the moment that they are revealed. Uh, so in order for this process to really work, I don't think you're going to see a lot of legislative language prior to the bill starting to work their way through committee. So um, we're all just pontificating about what it might look like. So stay in touch with, with Greg. So we'll open up for a short Q&A if anyone has a burning question for the panel. Becky Martin has the mic. We have answered all your questions. I'm staggered. Tim. Hi. Um, Tim Collins from J.P. Morgan. Um, Barry suggested that the political implications of growth derived from lower tax rates and other other moves by the Trump administration would be really important to the midterms. Um, we, we've been through this before with trickle-down economics. We just saw results in our own poll here that showed people would take money from a tax uh, decrease and they'd save it or pay it out to shareholders. Um, we didn't really see anything compelling about macroeconomic activity. I actually co-founded a supply-side economics firm, and I frankly never saw any compelling evidence of tax decreases spring real economic activity. So what do you think happens if we don't see a big growth response in the next two years? Well, I, so if it doesn't work out the way, then obviously there's punishment at the polls. You know, it, it, historically, a president's first midterm election, his party takes a beating. And the thing, I think, to, to, on the will it have an impact, what if you talk to major CEOs, if you talk to your CEO, for instance, he will tell you he is far more concerned about the regulatory side than the tax side. And every major CEO manufacturing side, financial service, any service industry, they will tell you the past eight years, it wasn't the tax code that, that, that stepped on them. It was the regulatory environment. So if you take the loosening of the regulatory environment coupled with a change in the tax code into a cash-based system rather than a debt-based system, it should unleash the animal spirits. But if it does not, yeah, there's going to be punishment at the polls. It will. So a uh, question for the panel, uh, what is the likelihood that we're sitting here in six months, seven months, time, um, having talked about the newly minted client alert, describing this new tax code to our clients and walking them through border adjustability and, and their newfound uh, low corporate tax rates, uh, expensing and how interest is now not deductible um, as a percentage? And we'll go down the panel just for fun. And, and we'll write it down like your little prediction on the poll. Uh, so you, you said seven months, and that's an important distinction because it's not going to happen before the summer recess, I don't think, because of the recess. Kate mentioned I'll make it healthcare. easy. Let's, let's say before nine months' time, just a year period, yes. There will, I would say there's a 70% chance there will be some sort of tax reform bill that significant pass before the end of the year. Kate? I'm going to take the other 30% of that. I'm at 50-50. Oh, come on. I, it's 100%. <laughs> Look, every, and this is the other thing. So I said every, you know, midterm election, uh, the president's party usually gets whacked. Here's the other thing. History shows you it, the first two years of a president's administration is when they get stuff done. They have capital. They burn it. The system is trying to get used to them. And there's this whole slew of things that they're going to try to get done for Congress. The single most important thing for their reelection is the tax bill. That's why it's going to get done. All right. We have time for one or two questions more. 
Gino Morelli, your hand was up first. He's, he's way back there. We want to make sure we get this captured from posterity on the podcast. Um, just real quickly, Greg, when you were talking about winners and losers, one thing you didn't speak about is, and I'm just curious about this in terms of how large of a economic player private private equity has become in our country. Can you speak to how how the potential tax reforms are going to shake out for the private equity industry? Sure. Uh, and, and we've had some discussions with uh, major private equity firms. I think their view is, uh, as long as they know what the code is, they they'll figure it out. Uh, I think that there may be more of an issue with highly leveraged private equity firms. Uh, the other issue, which has been big for private equity for a long time, is carried interest. Uh, the business, one thing we didn't discuss is the uh, the tax on on pass-through business income. And if you have that at a 25% rate, there's some theory that that might be the rate on carried interest. So, uh, in large part, it depends upon the rates, but highly leveraged firms will have to figure out um, some other way to capitalize their operations, and it'll probably be something that looks like debt, but the tax lawyer says is equity. That's what Barry says. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't say they were going to repeal. <laughs> So we have time for one more question. We know uh, everyone has uh, economic activity waiting for them at their desk. Ron Barba. Uh, Gino uh, got my question. All right. Just a quick comment. Um, the altruistic answer to we're all going to save our money if we get a tax break, in 37 years with Merrill Lynch, I've never seen that happen for a client. <laughs> People didn't come charging through your door to find places. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, you guys have been a terrific audience, and uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, nine months from now, 70%, 30%, 50%, and 100%. Uh, we will hold ourselves to account. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.